So again, if you appreciate them, you don't have to make sense of them. And I think one of the things when people learn, we have this thing that that some of the time you're using the techniques to help you practice, and other times you're using your practice to learn the techniques. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I don't know if you read Mark Twain when you were a youngster in school. Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn were boyish characters through which Twain shared his perspectives and comments on human nature. Some good old Americana, and while his characters have not aged well in our modern moment, the piercing wit and clarity with the foibles of human nature is a gift that Twain would go on to share in his other writings that were not tame enough for schoolchildren. Twain learned to pilot steamships in a time when you needed to know the name of the bends, bluffs, shoals, and sandbars of the Mississippi. There were no locks or dams, nor had that untamed water been channelized as it is now. In those days, piloting a ship meant having an intimate connection with the ever-changing landscape. In those days, you could not sleepwalk your way through a GPS-generated set of directions. Imagine the kind of sensorium that a person would need to know the character of those waters and, at the same time, be familiar and capable with the structure and mechanics of a steamship. I can glimpse how Twain fell in love with the river and with piloting. But like many of us, Mark Twain didn't have just one career. He and his writing went way beyond the seemingly innocent stories of children working their way out into the world. My favorite Mark Twain book is Letters from the Earth. It's a thin little gem that a friend passed my way shortly after I'd dropped out of college and decided to see more of the world that was increasingly not making sense to me, to see if there might be a path that better fit my feet and to investigate with skin in the game if the world was truly as I'd been told that it was. Letters from the Earth is the story of Satan getting booted out of heaven for a celestial day for his usual wisecracking and questioning of authority, which meant that he had time on his hands because that is eons, as we humans reckon time, and so he decides to go hunt up the Earth experiment as he'd been present with the other archangels at the instance of its creation. He was curious to see how things were going on there. The book are the letters surreptitiously written back to his brothers, Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel, and they detail his astonishment at how humans believe and behave. The atrocities, contradictions, and drama that all unfold in the name of God and righteousness. Little wonder that book was never on the reading list in high school. That little book holds up a hilarious and uncomfortable mirror to, regardless of your beliefs or perspectives, the flaws and brilliance of the human enterprise. That even in the best of circumstances, our motives are often enough tainted and suspect. Even as we seek to make the world better, there is a part of us that can't help but cause some mischief. These days, I like to think of Twain as a homegrown Midwest Lao Tzu, as he so brilliantly points out the interplay of yin and yang, 
how opposites with all their teeth and troubles tend to turn into each other and reminds us that the 10,000 things is a zany entangled mess. And good luck with getting the world sorted and settled, especially if you're a do-gooder and you think you're on the right side, however you frame that right side to be. I particularly love Letters from the Earth because it is the insightful observation of the supposed source of evil showing us with wit and satire that we are often enough the source of our own troubles and suffering, and that we need not to look out in the world or to an authority for a solution, but rather look within. What do we know, and how do we know that we know it? I've watched my own mind wrestle with this puzzle knot, and in my clinical work, probably like you, I am constantly checking to see if what I'm doing in service of my patients is helpful or not. Do I see clearly enough the difficulties that brought them to my door? Am I on the right course? Is the diagnosis in alignment with reality? And is my treatment helpful for them? In today's conversation with Dan Bensky, we explore the sensate world of engaging vitality. We discuss using palpation to directly connect with our patient's physicality and use that as a guide for understanding the source of their problem and to check and see if the treatment's on target. The methods and perspective we explore are part of an ongoing inquiry that Dan has had in which he draws from his background both in Chinese medicine and osteopathy. We'll get into this in a moment. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. 
We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I always enjoy my conversations with Dan and appreciate how his sense of inquiry and dedication has contributed so much to our profession through his teaching, publishing, and writing. So many of us have benefited through the books that came into our hands through Eastland Press, and his work with engaging vitality offers us a way to come to our senses and our clinical work. Let's get into this conversation on presence, practice. And appreciative listening. Dan Bensky, welcome to Geological. Always great to be here, Michael. Yeah, it's great to have you back. You were on one of the very early shows with John O'Connor. We were uh, reminiscing on the history of Eastland Press. Right, I remember that. That was a lot of fun. It was fun. Two old, a bunch of old guys. And it was also, you know, a lot of those stories are now 50 years old. I know. You were not an old guy when you were that CIA operative operating. (laughs) That's right. No, no. Yeah. So they really thought you were a CIA operative because you were in Macau studying Chinese medicine. Because we were in Macau. And then when we would tell people that we're here studying Chinese medicine, they would say, you CIA people are just stupid, and who would ever believe? You should pick a better cover. No one would ever believe that. <laughs> and then, you know, I did travel writing at the time, Michael. And right before I left, I sold a story to, I think, some off-brand Japanese airlines about how the CIA had gone public, overt in Macau, because in Portuguese, the uh, equivalent of ink was and CIA. So I had these pictures of all these businesses that said like 
Fung Lok and CIA and, you know, Musa and CIA, which just meant Musa Inc. or Musa and Company. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote up this thing about how the CIA had decided to just go public there. And I actually had a picture of John O'Connor as the head of the CIA in Macau. And uh, <laughs> I, I make sure I sold the story right before we, John had already gone and I was on my way out. So I, I never saw it, but uh, that, that's how I got my poetic revenge. I made a couple hundred bucks on this story. So, yeah. I'm feeling for all those people that you must have taught English to when you when you were there doing that too. Oh, yeah. I mean, my favorite group, I gave one group of guys all the names of the lesser prophets, like Nachman Chan and Zebediah Wang and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Well, you know, they say the Jews and the Chinese, they're, you know, they're really brethren. I'm sure those names didn't last all that long. But um, but that was, I think actually it was fun for everyone because they loved the sound of the names. And they also like that, you know, uh, having to teach them how to say Nachman. And that, that was like, I remember that guy was a very smart, very, I'd say adventurous human being. And so he loved his name. He loved his name. Well, so so it really yeah. fit him then. It fit him. Yeah. No, I no? was. Uh, not, it didn't fit all of them, but it fit fit him. Fit so. him. Reb Nachman Chen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were we were unli- we were unhinged in a certain level. So. Well, you know, you got to be a little bit unhinged to wander your way into something like Chinese medicine. It was not only that; it was like you know, it was very common in Taiwan in particular, and Macau, both places, that I would be walking down the street by myself and a bus would go by and suddenly everybody in the bus would turn to me and point at me. So, I mean, you might, maybe you had that in Taiwan also. But mm, not the, so the, much. No, by the time I got to Taiwan, you know, us foreign ghosts were, you know, much more common. I did have kids that would come up sometimes and like want to touch my skin. Right. With big, they have big eyes. But I mean, I was there around 2000, I think 2001. That's a long time. You know, Taiwan, Taiwan Odyssey. You were there in the 70s. It was still martial law there, wasn't it? Exactly. Oh, yeah. There were guys wandering around with fixed bayonets at night. Yeah. So, um, yeah. In a very lackadaisical manner. When I was there, it was a, as it still is, a can we say this in public? Yeah, I guess we can. Well, we are. It was a vibrant democracy. Yeah. That's an mm-hmm. amazing, hopeful um, transformation. Yeah. It, it's incredible to, to see that cultures can transform themselves that way. So yeah. Taiwan's super cool that way. Um, but back to Chinese medicine for a moment. Um, so you studied in Macau, and then, I mean, we're going to, this all winds around. We're going to talk about engaging vitality here in a little bit, which is the thing that I'm most interested in engaging with you today on. But you, you study in Macau, you learn Chinese medicine, and then you come back to the United States, and you go to medical school. I went to Taiwan afterwards, and I worked with a couple of people there. You went back to Taiwan? Went back to Taiwan, uh-huh. and then uh, when it hit me that I probably needed to go back to the U.S., I spent about three or four months in Japan Mm. Uh, working in different, uh, visiting different uh, acupunctures and even some herbalists as kind of a halfway house getting back to the United States. 
Yeah, then I actually came back and finished. Um, well, I mean, again, I don't know if this is going to be good radio or not. But um, I, uh, when I was in Japan, I met a really interesting guy named Nagayama Kunzo, who was a neurologist who did acupuncture and um, uh, compo. And uh, I had some interesting times with him. And uh, he, I asked him if I could come and work with him. And he said that he couldn't pay me even though I was graduate, but that, um, you know, if I learned Japanese, uh, I could work in his clinic. And so when I went back, uh, besides finishing stuff and uh, coincidentally, I think, doing pre-med type things, uh, I studied Japanese for a couple of years. And when I wrote him that um, now I was you know, going to be graduating in another six months and I was planning on coming to Japan, he wrote me back that uh, things had changed and now it would cost me a, f a few hundred dollars a month, which is, this is in 1978, to study with him. And that did a couple things to me. It threw my calculus off because if I had to do that, I had to make enough money to do that, that would crimp my study style. Right? It would make it harder for me to have enough time to really learn. And... Um, it reminded me of other times when uh, people I looked upon as teachers in East Asia did not treat me in a fair, in what I consider to be a fair manner. It may be just a cultural thing. And it's around that time I got interested. I heard about osteopathy through a bunch of coincidences. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, if I, if I go to school here in the U.S., I just have to show up and they'll teach me. Right, I won't have to do these kind of games anymore about proving myself worthy. Maybe in a game that I don't understand all the rules. Right, I can just show up, and people will teach me. Like, oh, I want that. I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of one of that's why I switched from originally. I was planning to go to Japan after I graduated from college, but I ended up going to osteopathic school. So you were. When you say you were going to college, this is after you'd been in Asia, you were already back in the U.S.? Yeah, so I went to Asia. I dropped out of college after a couple of years and went to Asia. And then I went to, to school in Macau. Then I came back from Asia in 76, and I graduated with an undergraduate degree. <laughs> Got it. Got uh, it. In 78. And you've been studying some Japanese, you finish your undergraduate degree, you're going to go work with this guy in Japan, and, you know, the rug gets pulled out from under you. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not, it wasn't saying don't come. It was saying, you know, you're going to have to spend an extra 10 hours a week maybe teaching that I just didn't want to do. And I just didn't like, you know, again, this it's my, it's my own uh personality it's like no i've i've been here before i've been here i had other times when teachers in east asia uh, kept changing the ground rules on me uh as we started to study uh and i'm sure you know maybe one story i had one guy who uh was thought he would have me as kind of window dressing and when he figured out that i actually knew some chinese medicine he just started lying to me about what he was doing. He he was a guy who made his own formulas. He had, so he, every formula had a number, and he would lie to me about what number was which formula because he didn't want me to learn anything. 
for reasons which um you know I am clueless mm-hmm. and so I had more than one experience like that and so it's like no I'm not doing I mean I don't want to do that again and again this idea that which was completely true you know you go to osteopathic school pretty much you say oh I'm interested in learning this they teach they'll say you. okay I'll teach you you know I'll I will try to teach you you may not learn it that's you know I'm I may be a good teacher or I may not bend over backwards to help you but that you will like I'm going to have to check you out or I'm afraid that if you learn this somehow that 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 bow show thing you know that kind of we call it conservatism but this desire to keep things to yourself mm-hmm. which I think is the bane of traditional culture in China in many different ways that's not something that's really there in um in the United States to certainly to if it's there it's much much attenuated and so it was true you know, I went to Oxford school I ended up working with all these amazing people and it was like oh you're interested uh well come work with me or you know interested what wh- why are you doing that well this is why I'm doing that you know what are you feeling well come here put your hand on the person see if you can feel if you, you feel that and so it was uh, super open and again I don't want to uh I want to take a full possibility that I'm my own personality just didn't fit uh in these East Asian circumstances it's must be partially the truth so but anyway for me personally it was so so refreshing to just like oh I just show up with a desire to learn I get taught and well, um yeah I I know from my own experience in East Asia Beijing in particular at one point I just I felt like I couldn't take it anymore that I was living life there was like this black box and you know input would go in I'd have a conversation with someone or about working somewhere or something or teaching or learning or whatever and then some output would come out and I'd be like I have no idea what the hell just happened what happened in the middle what's happening in the culture and I know that East Asian culture Chinese culture in particular very different from American culture I get it that's a lot of stuff I'm blind to because I'm an American and you know I, you can grok some of it you know if you're there and you know the language and you spend enough time going what the hell's going on and, and maybe figure a few things out but it's a lot of extra work it's a lot of overhead shall I say to living life and again, maybe to turn this into engaging vitality on one level, and I, I hope maybe you've studied with us, maybe you'll say I'm bullshitting you, but one level is like in engaging vitality, we teach everything that we know. That's right. right? We don't hold anything. No, sometimes like I won't teach you that because at this stage you won't understand it. I'll teach you the background for it. And then, you know, if you keep working with us when you're able to get it, then we'll teach it to you. So yes. I don't I don't hold anything back. That is exactly my experience. Again, maybe it's a cultural thing, but it's like not my it's not my decision. You know, I mean I'm not teaching people again maybe a little too contemporary nuclear codes. I'm just teaching them how to feel people and if they want to learn, I should do my best to help them learn. And the other thing that I think is different from my own experiences in East Asia is I'm trying to teach you tools and then what you do with those tools is up to you. I'm not teaching you to be like me 
or to practice like me, or if you do different things with the tools than I do with them, I'm happy. I'm not like, you know, I'm not, uh, this, there's a factionalization, which is strong in all cultures, but I think particularly strong in Chinese culture that, you know, that also gave me, like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. And you know, I didn't succeed <laughs> completely, but in general, it's like, we're trying to teach you these tools so you can help your patients better. And how you do that, it's up to you. I mean, I'm not, it's not like, I'm, you're not like, you know, on the outs, if you decide to do needle technique different than, <laughs> than I do different, or you have a different uh, overall schema for what you're doing. You no, know, our goal is like, no, these tools will help whatever schema you use, whatever style you do, they will help you be more effective. And how you do that, I mean, I'm, I'm interested just because I'm always, hopefully, I always like to learn things, but I have no, uh, maybe it's not the right, maybe it's the per perfect term. I have no skin in the game for what you do. Like, I don't care if you do moxa or direct moxa or you know, electroacupuncture or ear acupuncture or Korean, whatever. Uh, you have some kind of, you know, five-phase base thing. Sure, you know, the goal is you can learn what the body is responding to in a good way and what the body is responding to in a bad way, and then you can modify your own treatments. So this, for me, is one of the things that I most love about engaging vitality, and I think is most interesting about engaging vitality is that it is this set of tools. It's a way of learning to sense and interact with our patients so that we can get a response in real time. What's going on here? And like, who does acupuncture doesn't want to know that? I, I think we all <laughs> want to know that. And it's yeah. damn frustrating when we have to wait a week to find out, well, gosh, did what I do help or not? I mean, the other aspect of this, which I think is one of the mental things of these, of this, one of the mental tools in the toolbox is you have to be, okay with like, oh, I have this really clear idea what I want to do. And the body's telling me that's not right. I don't, I don't, I don't want that. And then, you know, some <laughs> people get offended or, or they get defensive or something. And like, that's not going to work. If, if you like, you know, you have a, if you're a very rigid person and, you know, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be those points, no matter what the body says, then this is not going to be attractive set of tools for you because you have to be like oh i thought it was this and i, I can give a, a bunch of examples very easy examples that and the body's saying no I mean, one example is we have all these as you know point finding chip used to call them point finding technologies but they're just point finding techniques and one of them is a different kind of scan and let's say you're going to do a back treatment on someone and in your mind, you've decided they have kidney yang deficiency influencing the spleen. And therefore, you're looking for, I think the numbers are bladder 20 and bladder 23. That's, what, that's the needles. That's the points you want to do. And then when you do the scan, it turns out that it's bladder 17 and bladder 19. And so it's a diaphragm liver thing. And that's telling you it's a constraint issue not a young deficiency issue. And then you can put that back into your 
algorithm or whatever and say, okay, let's go back and let's feel the pulse again. Let's maybe talk to the person again. You can realize what you had made them an error, which we all make all the time, that you had looked at this kind of lack of function as being due to some depletion when in fact it was due to some constraint. And the body will just tell you. And then similarly, if you ignore it and you put in bladder 20 and bladder 23, and you've learned EV techniques, the body will tell you, uh-uh, that's not right. All these things will change in a bad way. And so you can keep going <laughs> if you want, but it gives you a set of like, you know, so you're doing, I would say, straight TCM acupuncture and these tools, again, this, I mean, you could use the other tools that you have like pulse and tongue, et cetera, and maybe you would have seen that it was constrained anyway. You, know, you wouldn't make that mistake. But it's always good to have fallback and have these different measures, in, in, as you said, in real time to tell you, oh, no, my idea was, is not correct. And I can change it during the treatment so that what I do is helpful for the patient. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I find this to be one of the most challenging parts, not just of, of using the tools of EV, but just of being a practitioner. And that is, I've got an idea, I think it's right, I've seen, I'm seeing all these things that confirm it, ignoring all the things that don't. There comes that moment where me as a practitioner, I go, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with this. This is wrong. And now what? There's always that moment of now what? Like you say, maybe you, you do a, a chi assessment and you go, oh, it's actually a constraint issue. Okay, that, that's really helpful. That's a place to land because there's always that moment in between when you realize I have lost the scent of the trail and now I got to get back on. And again, if you are someone who is open to reality uh, and you're a practitioner, this happens you know, more often than we'd like to admit. It happens, you know, we have an idea, we have our own ideas, and sometimes they fit really well for what's going on with the patient, and sometimes they don't. So, yeah, I think that's one of the main things that it does is kind of, we call it feedback, that the feedback helpful. And again, even on a maybe 
more concrete level uh, is that let's say you want to do a bladder 20 on someone. Well, where, where is that point? One thing I think anyone who pays any attention to the body knows that there's no structure or no uh, effect in the body that's static. It's in the same place on everybody all the time. And so maybe bladder 20 is half a centimeter closer to the spine or half a centimeter farther away or slightly superior or inferior to where it is in the textbooks. And if you have ways to both find it and also to check the response that when you put a needle in, you need to get a response from the body. Otherwise, you're just sticking a needle in someone. And so if you have ways both to find where the point is and once you've needled it, that you're getting the response that is helpful, that will help you a lot, even though, and, and again, I'm very positive, though, again, doing this for <laughs> more decades than I like to th remember, is that these very, sometimes one or two millimeter differences, both in topography, like where it is on the skin and how deep it is, and sometimes the angle, they can make a huge difference in how good and big and positive a response you get from the body. And the techniques for learning to feel that are not particularly difficult. So let's say you have a, a style where you want to do these four points. And uh, sometimes you'll find out, I mean, in my experience, sometimes you find out, no, it's not those points. It's a different point, usually on the same channel. But, but even if it is those points, you know, you, it's not uncommon. Like if you're going to do, I'll give an example, um, Ren Mai, you know, going to do kidney six and lung uh, seven. It's very common that both of those points are moved around a little bit from whatever textbook location you have. And that the effect of the cords, you do ion pumping cords, will be minuscule if you put them in the wrong place and quite profound if you put them in the right place. And that's really sometimes just a millimeter away. So one of the things that I would say is not a postulate. It's a, uh, one of the things I think we've learned doing engaging vitality type things is that if in our medicine, there are multiple ways of looking at things, even something, again, as prosaic as a point location, if there are different point locations for a specific point, that means that all those locations are the right location some of the time. And none of those locations is the right location all of the time. Again, lung seven is a good example. Is it like on the lateral aspect in the styloid notch or is it on the volar aspect of the wrist? Well, if you start finding where the point is and where you, again, the point is the place that you get the best response, it will be in different places, not only in different people, but sometimes in the same person on different arms. I mean, why should we even be surprised about that? I don't know. I mean, you look at the veins on the back of your hand, they're not in the same, they're not symmetrical, mm -mm. right? So if you think the channels and points are more fixed than, than the veins, I think that's that's delusional. That, that, that has to be delusional. They, whatever they are, if they're real, they can't be more fixed than blood vessels. 
And well, you can just look at your own hands and you can see that the veins on the back of your hand are not the, exactly the same place on each hand. And so again, if you were going to do a phlebotomy on your, on your, someone does phlebotomy either in your anywhere, and if they just took out like a stretchy ruler and said, oh yeah, our access to the brachial vein is one out of 13 places between this and this, <laughs> you would like run out of the room, right? You would not let that phlebotomist stick a hypodermic needle in you. And so if that's true, um, I guess, I think it's one of the things that when you start to pay attention, Michael, you realize there's lots of conventions in our medicine. And uh, there has to be some level of convention in any medicine, but maybe this conventions, and because the conventions are based on abstract thinking, you get into trouble. You get into the, you know, able to do th sets of points that either don't do anything or actually sometimes make the person worse because it's based on abstract thinking and convention. And if you actually, again, not only the techniques that we teach, but any kind of feedback technique, uh, you'll see that, oh, that's not getting a good response. I always know that I'm in trouble in clinic. Whenever the thought goes through my mind, well, according to the theory, I, that's when I know I need to pause, take a breath, reassess, because I really have lost the scent of the trail at that point. Not to say theory and maps are not useful. They're very useful, but it's just, it's just a, a little way that I know that I've gone amok. Yeah, I think an uh, adage we use is, theory is always clinically useful in theory. All right. I think we need to put that on some bumper stickers. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, it's not, you, you can't operate without theories. It's not, and, and again, one of the things about any feedback mechanisms like EV is, uh, for example, you do point location and you find the point that's not the point you're thinking of almost all the time. What I would do, I still do it sometimes, is you go look into the different either modern or ancient books about points and you'll see that, oh, yeah, for this person in the textbooks or in the, you know, UN Dynasty books, that is the point for this person. You know, I just didn't know that information. And so it's not, I don't want to make, it's not like theory and this kind of hands-on stuff. They're not adversarial. They're synergistic. You learn a lot about the, we used to, we call it the infrastructure of our medicine by paying attention to what's really happening. And again, the medicine is based on reality. Again, it's not, it's not, so it can get veer off into abstraction and convention, but that's not its core. And so it's very, very common that you'll find a point and you're going, what, what, I don't even, what number, what point is that? And then you look it up and it's like, oh, that's the right, the, the functions for that point in this book are exactly what this patient needs. So it's not a, it's not, they're not against each other, but you know you need to do what we all. I mean, I, I would call it a more three-dimensional approach to the medicine, and that means you have to tie what you feel and what you appreciate and what's going on in the person with the theory, and not just overlay the theory onto them in some kind of Procrustean bed-type manner. Mm -hmm. You just used the word appreciate. What do you mean by that in this context? Yeah, I think, and again, this is, uh, I'm going to go into 
overly personal, so I, I apologize to everyone. I'm a very, by nature, I'm a very judgmental person. And I realized over decades, that's really, really unhelpful doing any kind of medicine, actually. And so instead of when you feel that, that you say we have things to feel the chi or feel the blood flow or to feel the wei chi or whatever it is, it's really important to me that you approach it with a sense of appreciating it. You want to get a sense of what's there and have a sense of how it's working. And then, and then you want to diagnose, you do that next, but you don't try to diagnose right away. And uh, we always talk about when you want to feel something, you have to separate sensation from interpretation. Because if you try to interpret right away, you start looking for things. And if you look for things, you're screwed. I mean, maybe a great example, when I used to work at uh, schools and the students would see a patient who was fatigued and their digestion was uh, at loose stools and their tongue was pale and slightly, you know, maybe teeth marked, when they felt the right pulse, they would press, and it didn't have a middle burner deficient pulse, they would press so hard on that artery, on real artery, that the patient's hand would go white because they knew they had to have a spleen deficiency when in fact maybe the person was dampness they didn't have deficiency but they would they were looking for a depressed sunken thin deficient middle burner pulse on the right and it wasn't there so they would make it there <laughs> they would press so i mean literally there's a thing in western medicine called an allen sign where you press the radar to see how long it takes the the person's hand to go white from lack of a oh look they have blood deficiency too they have blood deficiency too and so that's just a you know that's an example of like that we have to worry about all the time that like we if you want to just appreciate it i think with pulse or tongue or anything don't say oh does this person have blood stasis in their tongue then you're already your view is skewed you want to just as much as you can appreciate what their tongue looks like and then later go oh those things those could be blood stasis but if you say oh where is the blood stasis in the tongue then you'll you, you will often find it when it's when you look at a picture of the tongue later it's like there's nothing there and so certainly with the, most of the stuff that we do is palpatory it's even easier to like, you know, we have a thing when the, the chi signal assessment, and if you, what you need to do when you do that is you need to receive the information from the body, which means your hand has to be receiving information. But when people try, they emit. And when they emit, they will, they will you know, get something going that they can feel not what's going on in the body, but the body's response to their hand emitting. And if they want to find a certain point or they want to find something, they'll emit harder and then they will feel what they want to feel when instead of just appreciating what's there. And I think so appreciation is not is like being more open and saving your discernment for another step in the process. Because if you bring it up right away, you'll just find, you'll be looking for things. And we all have a tendency, everybody, 
has a tendency, if you look for something, you'll have a tendency to find it, whether it's there or not. And so even something that, you know, we're a visual culture, this, this really applies to visual clues. We're not a tactile culture, so it applies even more, I think, to palpatory clues. I know it's been one of the biggest challenges for me with using these tools that we're talking about here today of being able, and, and this word appreciation, I'm very curious to go into my clinic this afternoon and, and just invite that appreciation into my awareness. Very curious to see what happens because I feel like I have to be on guard often in terms of is this something I want to see or is this something that's here? And then I get into this thing of, well, can I even trust anything that's going through my mind in the first place and blah, blah, blah. It's easy to get distracted away from being present with sensing. Have you got any thoughts about working with that? Yeah, I think it is the, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure this will be helpful or not. If we make a mistake, no one will die, right? If Hopefully. you make a mistake, well, I don't. I think in in, in general, yeah. It, usually, we we don't have that. Usually, concern. usually, and so yeah. you should. It's it's uh, again. This is the thing I think was stated most clearly by our late friend Chip. You should have kind of a playful attitude, and it's kind of just oh, what, what's there? What's it's cool, and and then you're again this sense of appreciation. I know for sure that if you, the more you try, the harder it is to use these tools. You just have to use them. And again, m most of these tools were quite difficult for me to learn in the beginning, uh, again, 40, 40 years ago. Um, and one of the things that helped me a lot, just, just personally, is I couldn't feel such and such a thing. And I would say to myself, not only can I feel, but this is bullshit. There's nothing there. It's like, this is a crazy idea. You're feeling something off the body. Are you kidding me? But if I could feel something, what would I feel? Like, oh, I feel that. Is that, that would cut out that kind of, you were talking about this kind of self-judgment and it's like, oh, I, it's, there's nothing there. But if there was, what would it feel like? Oh, it feel like that. So that's one way I think can help people cut out and uh, I still learn new things and sometimes I still do I still have trouble with new things I'm learning and it's the same process so I think this idea and also that again I would do this for everything and I don't know if you remember but when I used to teach pulse diagnosis for the students I would start them by just they had to come up with some kind of metaphor to remember what they felt versus coming up with, oh, I understand what a wiry pulse is or a slippery pulse. I think that's not really a good way for these people in our culture to learn. It's more like, I felt this pulse in this person and it reminds me of Cannon Beach or it reminds me of my sister or it reminds me of Louis Armstrong, whatever it is, whoever it works. It's most important that you can remember, oh, and then I feel that pulse in another patient. I remember that's the same pulse. And then later when you put different things together, you can say, oh, and that's the pulse that they call a rough pulse, or that's a pulse that they call a slippery pulse. So you appreciate what the pulse is like, and you have to remember, you don't remember pulses, you can't use them because you have to compare them 
with all the other things that you know and across patients. But if you remember it, and you remember the way that no one else knows that word, and then later you're able to, with that kind of grounding, you can say, oh, so in the, of the 26 pulses, this thing that I call, you know, my sister Mary Jane's pulse, that is what they called a wiry pulse. I mean, it doesn't matter. So again, if you appreciate them, you don't have to make sense of them. And I think one of the things when people learn, we have this thing that, that some of the time you're using the techniques to help you practice. And other times you're using your practice to learn the techniques. So there's lots of examples. One example, we do a thing where we can listen to the channels. And there's a bunch of different things you can feel in the channels. And one of the things you can feel the most basic one is, is that channel open or not? And if it's not open, where is it not open? And for some people, this is very easy. And for other people, it's very hard. So you can use that to say, oh, this person has medial knee pain, but I feel that the non-open channel is the gallbladder channel on that knee. So that'd be one way of using it to say, okay, where the problem is is not where the symptom is. But while you're learning it, you could say, I have, I can't feel this. Okay, so I'm going to do, I'm going to needle A point again. This is a guy. I'm going to needle stomach 36. So I'm going to do this channel listening, which takes about one second. I'm going to do it on the stomach channel, and then I'm going to needle stomach 36. Then I'm going to do it again and see, does it feel different? The things that I don't, I don't need to know how it's different or what, how to describe how it's different, but just, oh, I felt something or nothing, and then I needle stomach 36, and oh, I feel something different. And then you do that, you know, I need some one patient, one needle a patient, after 50, 60 patients, you have this thing down. It's a, it's, you'll be able to feel it. So that kind of mentality that when you, if, to get where you want to go, sometimes you use the techniques to help you treat the patients better. And then sometimes you use the treatment to learn the techniques to help other people. And again, most of the things we teach, the, I think the one that takes the longest takes about 30 seconds to do. Uh, most of them take you know, less than a couple seconds. And so I think that's what's one way to just approach it that, you know, today I'm not feeling this. I'm going to pick this one thing and just, you know, every time I talk about the chief signal assessment, I'm going to feel it in the three burners, whatever I feel. I'm not going to pay attention. I'm not going to use what I, what I think I'm feeling because I'm not sure I'm feeling anything. And then I do my treatment, whatever it's going to be. And I do it at the end. And, um, you'll find out that sometimes there's a big change and maybe sometimes not. I don't know. Does that make sense, Michael? It it does make sense. And I love the idea, I mean, partly because I'm just always inquisitive in the clinic and, and I'm not alone. I think most people listening to this conversation today are inquisitive in their clinic, like, what's going on here? You know, we want to help people. How can I help people? What's happening here? So that sense of inquisitiveness and being able to, to say, all right, today I'm going to focus on this one thing. I'm going to explore this. I'm going to go into clinic and I'm going to play with this. I'm going to hopefully help people. 
you know, and I've got all the things that I already know that I think are helpful that I can always do. But on top of that, I'm going to listen to the yang rhythm. On top of that, I'm going to do a scan to see what channels are open or not open. Again, not because I can do it or I'm, you know, like looking at it, you know, with eagle eyes, like I got to get it, but huh, I wonder what's here. Exactly. This might be bullshit. Well, let's experiment. Do I feel anything? I, I love the way that you phrase it. If I could feel something, what would that feel like? I'm like, ooh, yeah. that's a great... Because <laughs> I have those times, right? I'll, I'll have my hands on people's ankles. I'm like looking for that yang rhythm. It's like, don't look for the yang rhythm. If you look for it, you know, it's shy. It's not going to, you know, you look for it. It's not going to show up. It's like going into the woods or like, or even better, it's like, it's like uh, approaching a cat. You want to pet a cat, right? And, and the cat's not sure if it wants to be pet or not by you. So you can't let the cat know that you want to pet it. You just got to like kind of synchronize your chi in a way, you know? And then the cat will be like, oh, you're an interesting character. Yeah. I think another thing that's really helpful, I mean, I think one of the ideas we have that I think is unusual, and again, I'm, I, I, I don't get out much, so I don't know, is that in our medicine, despite uh, where the culture that we live in, more is not necessarily better. Mm. And that it's really common for people to, pay, uh, practitioners to over-treat their patients. And they over-treat them, and then patients get tired afterwards or get other kinds of symptoms or just feel lousy uh, almost all the time uh, in my, and from my experience, that's because they've overtreated. And so one of the, it's not only don't need uh, EV, but certainly in our, our techniques, you can learn right, right away that, oh, the body said that's enough. I'm not taking this like, you know, we're having a conversation and sometimes the, you get to the point but if you keep talking about it, the person's going to turn off and they're not going to really hear you. And I think the same thing happens with, with practice, with, with acupuncture or moxibustion. And, you know, there are things the pulse will change in a specific way that tells you that pulse can't deal with it. The, the tongue will, if you check the tongue, you overtreat people, the tongue will become uh, swollen and teeth marked, uh, you know, just with the, It'll be fine, and you add one more needle, and it will change. And then we have all sorts of techniques that we teach that make it really simple and quick. And I think that's really important because over-treatment is not good for people, and it's not good for you. Know, also, you waste uh, resources and time. And so I think having the idea that we have this dialogue is a call and response and that the treatment is the body's response, not what we do, then that gives you a sense that, okay, the body has responded, the best is gonna respond. I mean, or maybe the best is gonna respond with your input. Maybe someone else would have a better response, but it doesn't matter, they're not there. And then that's enough. That's, that's, that's all that can, you can do, and you have to stop. And you can't just keep throwing needles in people, uh, expect to have a better result, if the body's not able to accept the information. And I think that's a thing, maybe that's something that we've figured out with this, if you're paying attention to feedback all the time, when the body says enough, or when your input is no longer having a positive output, 
you can pick it up right away. And if you pick it up right away and you take out that last needle or, or whatever, then you don't get those side effects afterwards. And I think that's a really useful thing for people. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. Well, I suspect we should probably all read at least once a year that great classic of enoughness. <laughs> right? Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's such a wonderful child story. I think about that damn story all the time in clinic. When especially when someone looks really robust, but uh, you, you you get started and you realize, "Whoa, I I was fooled." Man, you fooled me. And um, yeah, you you know it's like using futsa, right? When you need to use futsa, you need to use futsa. And not using it is not helpful to your patients. Using too much of it is not helpful to your patients. You need the right amount. It's, I think it's really true with acupuncture. And I know that we have this idea that acupuncture is inherently harmonizing and regulating. You can't really hurt people with it. I don't think that's true at this point. I remember hearing true. that years ago, and, and I thought, yeah, great. You know, we can't hurt people. Um, I was wrong about that. Yeah. Really, really wrong. It's it's, it's harder than <laughs> in some other forms of medicine to sure. hurt people. But if you try hard, you can do it. Well, or if you're just not paying attention. Yeah, not paying attention. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's also one of the things I think is a, just a truism about our medicine it's a traditional medicine, and traditional medicine, you get better by experience, and you only get experience if you pay attention. So you can treat a thousand people, and you, if you don't pay attention to them, you have no experience because uh, you're not, you know, you're not learning anything. You you manage to do whatever some, you know, whatever some low back point protocol on a hundred people. And you're not paying attention to what's happening. You probably have experience in inserting needles. You probably insert needles better than you did before, but you haven't gained any experience, and you don't know anything more than you did before. And so uh, you have to pay attention. And you can pay attention. You, know, you can pay attention by looking at people or talking to them. You know, but if you do palpation, 
you have no choice but to pay attention. And I think that's a beneficial, maybe side, side benefit of doing palpation is that you can't do it. Because if you put your hands on people and you're not paying attention, they know right away. Yeah, you, you know, they, they will not come back because you have this kind of leaden, tight, distracted hands. People don't like that. And conversely, if you put your hands on people and you're paying attention to them, they know you're paying attention to them on a, a level that maybe they're not paid attention to very much. And that's a, that, that's also a positive, maybe, maybe it's a positive placebo aspect, but I think it, is for the from the practitioner's point of view, you cannot palpate and not pay attention in some level. If you pay attention to yourself, then you get uptight and all those kinds of things. But I think over time, it's not too not too hard to, you know, get experience. That's what I think palpation really helps you get experience. But again, you can get experience by talking. It's not the only way to get experience but that it's hard to not get experience if you focus on palpation. I very much appreciate the reminder about learning pulses. And uh, I also remember at one point you said, does this pulse remind you of a song? You know, uh, so there, there's that, or does it remind you of a place? I, I have found in, in my time doing Chinese medicine First, we learn this really weird language that describes a kind of physiology and ecosystem of what people are. We begin to think about wind and fluids and blood and, and you know, yin and yang. We're thinking about all kinds of different things. And, and in time, what at least this is just for myself, I find that I've been learning a, um, a vocabulary it's an image-based vocabulary. It's a sensate-based vocabulary. Yes, there's also some theories that, that tie those things together to keep my, uh, my thinking mind involved. But it's very much a process of learning a vocabulary of sensation, of feeling, of images, of experiences. It, it's very nuanced and rich. It's very much a tapestry of experience in it. And yes, there is some rational um, flowchart thought that also goes through it, but mostly not. And, and having some attention and appreciation, again, that word appreciation, look, it's showing up in my language now all of a sudden. I have found that to be helpful. When I look back on my experience, that is incredibly helpful. And I think that appreciation goes in different ways. I'm going to tell an extremely embarrassing story about myself, but how using appreciation has helped me. When I first came back, talk about judgmental, arrogant, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I used to see people every 20, 30 minutes. And if the patients asked me to explain what I was doing, I would tell them something like, well, we have you know, 30 minutes. I can either treat you in 30 minutes or I can explain what I want to do in 30 minutes. It's up to you. And uh, to my uh, later chagrin, I actually had some patients who were like, well, we'll do two though. I want you to, I'll pay you 30 minutes to tell me what's going on in 30 minutes to um, do the treatment. And over time, as I appreciated things, I realized 
that was arrogant and stupid and uh, I think unacceptable on so many levels. And so now I have switched, I mean, the last 20, 30 years switch, that I will sometimes tell patients, because this, this is the truth, if I cannot explain what I think is going on with you in two minutes in the way that you understand, that means that, in fact, I don't understand it either. That if all I can do is talk about it in, this, in the jargon of our medicine, that means I don't actually understand it. And so uh, now if people ask me what's going on, I will sometimes say, okay, I should be able to do this in two minutes. And every so often it's like, mm, I can't. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually don't understand it. I have, I've hid, I think it's also so not only in terms of palpation, but in terms of even of theory and of concepts that you can hide behind the jargon, but not actually know what it means. And so if you have a person, of, again, I would say maybe if they're under 12, this doesn't apply. But otherwise, and two minutes is maybe, you know, it's approximate. It's not like two minutes and 30 seconds or something. But in a very short period of time, you should be able to explain what our medicine says about the person. Because the medicine is about experience and about things that people understand. It's not about, they don't have to learn technical jargon about, biochemistry or biophysics or things like that. It's all about this works and that works and you're constrained or something that. And so when that switch went on in me, it made me realize that I've been doing things completely wrong for a decade or so, that my approach to the medicine is not this rarefied, esoteric. It's about people's experiences and how they experience things not working and things working. And again, uh, I would say now, maybe I'm being kind to myself, but certainly over 90% of the time, even if it's like an extraordinary channel, those are things that you can't, if you understand them yourself, you can explain them to the average person in the way that they understand in just a couple minutes. And so I think that's the question of appreciating the medicine where you have that attitude of, Again, I'm not trying to figure out how esoteric it is or how obtuse it is or how, you know, I had to meditate for 20 years to understand what this idea means. Those all may be helpful, but the basic ideas are people just made up looking at what's going on. I don't, I don't know if you agree, but uh, I think that sense of appreciation for our patients, for the medicine, for what you feel, instead of trying to judge it or whatever whatever else. I would just add one more thing to that. And, and actually, you did say it, but I just want to underline it here. To be able to say it back to them in a way that they understand. To be able to take whatever symptoms, whatever story, whatever perspective they have on the world, and not to invite them into Chinese Medicine 101, but for me to take my understanding as I understand it, if I actually do, and what a great way to check yourself to see if you understand it or not, to be able to say it back to them, you know, within their own words, within their own story, within what brought them in, in a way that they go, exactly. wow, this guy gets me, right? And I'm not trying to be manipulative here. I'm just trying to make sure that we're connected. Now, so talking about like de qi and, you know, tong qi, right? Opening the qi, being able to say back to your patient in a way that they can grok 
themselves. Maybe you don't even need a needle after that. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, this is one of my bugaboos, and I think I got it from my sojourn in mainstream medicine. I get really pissed off when I work with students, and they ask, they talk about a patient being compliant or non-compliant. I hate that. I just say there's no reason them to comply with us. It's always are they cooperative or uncooperative? And I think this idea about explaining things in their own terms comes to the same idea. If we're asking them to change their lifestyle or diet or whatever, it's going to work. They have to understand why, and then they have to want to do it based on that. And if they're just doing it because we told them to, I think that's not that's not the way that things should work. You know, again, one of my you know, you've had Valia on uh, the podcast. She talks about engaging vitality as a very democratic approach to medicine. The idea is that we are not telling the person what to do. We are working with them, cooperating with them, figuring out what they need that we can provide. And it's, no one's really in charge, right? We're working together. And I think this idea about, you know, this is why this thing about cooperative versus compliant, sometimes, you know, maybe you remember as a student, People just raise their eyes like, oh, that's Dan doing his thing. But to me, this is a really big deal that it's the power issues in our society. If you want people to be healthy, they have to be engaged in their own care. And, uh, and that if you can get them to do something by browbeating them or mystifying them, that's not going to make them healthy in the long run. And that so they have to be on board and they have to, I mean, yeah, and they can decide also, no, what you said about me is bullshit. And, and that's not what's true for me. That means they should go find someone else to work with, right? It's just the, the way it is. Uh, it happens less often than I would think. But uh, so I think this idea about being cooperative, we are in a cooperative group working together to get them to a certain place where their their body can do the work, uh, I think that's really important to me. And I think that's part of the underlying impetus for teaching and sharing the toolbox that's engaging vitality, that it gives practitioners a sense like, no, I want to do that point. Well, who gives a shit what you want to do, right? That's not the point, so, so to speak. It's that, oh, they they will get a better response from a different point. And, uh, you know, whether you understand it or not is important, but it's secondary importance. If you can help people and not completely understand why, that's better than thinking you understand why and not helping them. So I think there's a little bit of, that we're very egotistical uh, creatures. We want to be in charge, yes. blah, blah, blah. Well, in... And so often we love hearing it, I know at least early on in practice, when there's not a lot of confidence and like, what the hell am I doing? Am I even going to be able to make it? When people come in and they say things like, you got rid of my back pain, it's like, oh, maybe I do know something about this. That in the long run is not helpful because they could just as easily come in and go, my back pain is worse. All right, now, you know, now I'm a shitty practitioner. And in the end, it's them who 
it's our patients who do the healing. We get to assist, we get to accompany, we have this curious way of interacting with people that does help to, pun intended, engage their vitality so that they do it. As far as like compliance and telling people, you know, what they should do or how they should do or blah, 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 it, it took me a good 10 years in, in practice before I realized I'm tired and I'm pissed off and there's no good reason for it. If people, and sometimes I'd have people come in, they go, you know, I know I wouldn't have these migraines if I didn't drink this six pack of my favorite diet cola, but it's my only joy in life. I'm not going to tell them to stop drinking. They just told me they know what they need. But if I browbeat them in the way that they are browbeating themselves, that's not going to help. We need to find another way. Yeah, I mean, I guess, they, I mean, uh, maybe you've had this experience too. There are a group of very difficult patients whose main problem, from my perspective, is they are uncomfortable when they are relaxed. <laughs> yes, yes. And And then the goal of the treatment has to be to make them comfortable being relaxed. And if you, because if they can't do that, you can't help them in any other way. And then after you can get them to be, and again, you can't put a switch in and say, okay, now you're relaxed, feel good, because they'll flip out, right? So it's, it's a process. And again, I think it's one of the great things about our medicine. It's a process you could do without talking to them very much. You don't have to convince their mind that they should be comfortable. You can get their organism to be comfortable being mm-hmm. relaxed bit by bit. Mm-hmm. And very commonly, the other symptoms will go away uh, after that. Uh, less commonly, they don't, but then you work on them and they're, they're as uh, easy as a regular patient. But if they can't be relaxed, they can't abide being relaxed, you know, I mean, if, whether you talk about it in chi or autonomic nervous system, whatever it is, uh, they're, they're not going to do very well. And so I think that's the example of you have to figure out what's important, but you can't tell them, oh, your problem, <laughs> your problem is you don't like being relaxed, so like it, okay? Get with the program. <laughs> I don't think that would work very well. Yeah. Um, one thing for sure, you practice this stuff long enough, it will humble your ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. It really does. And, and and thank you for bringing that up and pointing it out, the, the piece about some people. Uh, th- there's another kind of patient that I see, too. If they're not worried about something, they're worried because they're not worried. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a similar kind of manifestation. And there's a kind of comfort just in their own skin, a comfort in their own being. That, that for whatever reason, they have trouble with. And, and one, I think one of the great beauties of acupuncture is we don't have to talk anybody into anything. We don't have to, like, cognitive, behaviorally, you know, help people not be so reactive or whatever. We can invite them into a moment of repose. And their body will help us do that. Our body will guide us. Their body will guide us. Ours will too because we're appreciating and we're paying attention. And, and without knowing it, they can slip into that state. They're a little bit unguarded and they slip into that state. We know it when we come back in the room. 
right? You open the door and it's like, whoa, it's different in here. And you look at the patient, it's like, they're really different. And you pull the needles out and they kind of look, their eyes are usually a little bit moist, right? And, and, and they're kind of like, what was that? Or, I, you know, they're, they're, they'll say something to the effect of like, what did you put on those needles? Or, you know, what is this? Sometimes they're just like, what is this? And I love those moments because it, it's an opportunity to, to pause and go, that's you. Well, how did that, where did that come from? Well, the needles can call up what is present. If you didn't have this in you, the needles couldn't call it up. This is you. Well, how long will it be here? It's always in you. I think those are my favorite moments hmm. in doing the work when people touch in on something that is essentially who they are, that they have not been connected to. And now they're connected. That's right. And I think, you know, just talking about engaging vitality, one of the issues in that kind of thing is that could happen when you do a base meridian therapy type treatment or you do a TCM type treatment or you do an extraordinary vessel type treatment, or you do just some kind of back, you know, shoe point type treatment, or you do ear acupuncture. But I think in any given person, any given patient at a given time, one of those approaches will work better than the others. And it's not dependent on, sometimes the approach that works better is one you don't know, but you have to do the one that of the ones that you do know, the one that will work the best. Uh, and, and, and so you need a bunch of feedback ideas. You need to be open that it's not the one that you like to do. It's something that you need to know. And vice versa, we also see sometimes where someone is very clear that I do this style, and it doesn't matter what the style is. And when they put the needles in, the person gets kind of jumpy and, uh, you know, so they don't, they don't need any palpatory feedback, but the person gets kind of uncomfortable. Well, that's telling the practitioner that's not the right approach for this person. And then, uh, so I think it's behooves us to have a few different approaches that we can feel competent in because people who come in, in my opinion anyway, they don't, they don't know in advance what we're good at. <laughs> they just come with their problems. Yes. And well, so it's, it's good to have different ways of finding out of the things that we do know, which one will be the most appropriate for the person before we start treating them and then they start uh, being all agitated or, or whatever. Well, as my middle school shop teacher said, right tool for the right job, boys. That's right. That's you know, right. Yeah. have different tools and use the thing that's appropriate. And hopefully we've got some different tools and, and something like engaging vitality, which allows us to have a conversation with the body in real time. Let's just see if it's a good match or not. Again, same thing I said before. If there are a bunch of different ways of approaching people in our medicine, they all must work sometimes. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't wouldn't be around well this has been delightful as always well thanks for having me michael it's fun to yak about medicine yeah <laughs>
if folks would like to find out what you're up to, you and the EV crew, where would they go? Um, I think we have a website. I know we have a website. It's called engagingvitality.com. And uh, all of our information is there. You know, we have classes in Europe and the United States, some online things. There's resources. There's uh, videos. And uh, I think actually the previous things that Valia and I have done with you are up there, stuff from, from Chip can get a sense. We're in the beginning of working on our YouTube channel, which hopefully in the next few months we'll have, you know, a series of five-minute videos introducing the different aspects of our toolbox. And so our idea there is that people can get a sense of what we're doing so they can decide if they're interested in learning what we're doing. That's not up yet, but I, I assume, maybe a hope is more than assume, uh, by the summer, we'll have something up there. Great. So well, I think that's where they would find out. I will make sure that that information is on, in the show notes. And once you get the, the YouTube channel up, I can update that so yeah, so people can get access to it. That sounds like a great way to have a, a little taste before you jump in. And are we having the geological live thing next month? We are having a geological live thing next month. So we've got that as well. That's right. That's right. But you'll have to have done the first one that we did. Which is possible. It's up on the website. Yes, but you can just watch the video. Yeah, just a, a way of using the some of the off-body thing that we call chi signal assessment uh, based on Jean-Pierre Barral's manual thermal evaluation. To, it's very helpful, again, for over-treatment, for sure, and finding the, the most useful points. So that's what we'll be doing in the geological live thing. You just mentioned Dr. Barral. And there's something you've said, I've heard you say this over the years, actually, that once you trust your hands, you're in for a wild ride. That's exactly right. So can you tell us about a wild ride that you've had? Well, um, yeah, I don't, this, I had too many. Uh, I mean, part of it is I'm myself, I'm a very a down-to-earth, prosaic, uh, stick-in-the-mud type person. And so that you can see that by what we've been talking about the last hour, trusting my hands has put me into a different place. Well, I, the one that comes to mind, Michael, is more osteopathic. So I don't know if it's appropriate. So maybe you can, anyway, is that um, I had a patient with very, very ill, uh, dying of multiple myeloma. And he came to see me. And normally when we feel different kinds of motions, uh, we'll feel like either a, a specific place or a vector. And in his case, I just felt as everything was being compressed from all levels with no center or no or origin point. And because he was a former student of mine, and I'm also sometimes have a bad, an odd bedside matter, when I felt this, I just went, huh. Right, right in front of the patient. And he asked me what's going on. And I said, I, what I just said, he said, oh, well, you know, I've been feeling really down the last week or two. Uh, that's, cor that's correlated with me getting hyperbaric oxygen treatments. And so because of his illness, the pressure of the hyperbaric oxygen was more than his body could take and it was compressing him. And we used mostly acupuncture, actually, to uh, improve that. So there's an example of like, I have this, like, 
I have a set in my own head, like I just mentioned before, like, oh, there are things that I should be feeling, but because I could just appreciate what was there, it's like, I don't know what that is. That's, that's wacky. And then it turned out to have a very logical uh, a reason. It's very, very common. I think one of the things we do with channel listening is we can feel which, so uh, maybe it's not quite the same kind of thing, but it's very common in, uh, in East Asian medicine that they'll have problems from an organ perspective that are the main issue is the relationship between two organs, liver, spleen, uh, spleen, gallbladder, heart, kidney, all those kinds of things. And it turns out if you do channel listening and you can see, you can find out very quickly, oh, this is a spleen liver problem, not a liver spleen problem, that you have to focus on the, on the spleen. The spleen is the core. And you can get that from pulses and other things, but it really was astounding to me that how, you know, in, in literally in five seconds, like, oh, it's very clear that from an herbal perspective, I should be using, you know, things that focus on the spleen more than things that focus on the liver. And so I think that was a big surprise to me that, you know, a surprise to me that the channels are connected <laughs> to the organs uh, at the time, you know, maybe 20 years ago, that was a kind of a surprise to me. I think that's one of the best parts about doing this work, Dan, is these these constant surprises, hopefully constant, or you know, at least somewhat reliable surprises, that that really do illuminate this. It's like, oh, that's how that's connected. I see that now. It goes from being a theory to being something more embodied in our experience. Exactly. It's that infrastructure. And again, you know, if you think about it just from a rational perspective. So I've been doing this for 50 years. I know a lot more than I did 50 years ago. But in my own mind, I went from knowing, you know, zero out of 100,000 things I should know to knowing 300 or 400 out of 100,000 things <laughs> that there is to know. And so, you know, uh, I think as you, you were saying, there's a certain modesty and a certain excitement at the same time. Like, oh, I learn something every day. Uh, I don't have, again, one of the things that I think as uh, some people who study with us, study with us, with, with Chip and me and Marguerite, is that, you know, we've been doing this for decades, but it's still interesting and exciting. It's fun. There's stuff to learn all the time. It's not like we're not, you know, you, if you do this kind of work, you cannot get into a rut no matter how much you, you, you want to. Um, because as everything is real, like in some of the things that we have a, a postulate, that every aspect of East Asian medicine should have a palpatory referent. But for some of them, we don't know what that is yet. And, and there's no reason why we would. We have to figure it out, or other people will have to figure it out over time. So it's, uh, and again, this is maybe our culture, that we like the sense of exploration, of discovery, of uh, working with our patients together uh, to get to new insights about themselves and the medicine. Uh, that's uh, very attractive, at least for me and for, I think for many other people. And, uh, and again, as you said, it's a, it's a wild ride and you have no idea where it's gonna end. Uh, I mean, I, again, I maybe 
one last story if you have time is the 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 qsa was something i found very difficult to do in the beginning and uh after doing it for a few years i just did it sporadically and i was doing it on a patient of mine who i'd seen quite a few times before and uh he asked me what are you doing and i said oh you know i'm doing this kind of stuff and he said well you, you haven't done that before on me he said well you know i feel it's a little odd it's I'm waving my hands off the body. It feels a little weird. And the patient said to me, like, versus the other stuff that you do? <laughs> and I realized uh, for myself and for anyone, anytime we have a thing, we say, oh, I don't want to do this because the patients will think it's too weird or too odd. It's really we're saying, I don't want to do this because I'm too uptight about it. To me, it's too weird or too odd. And uh, so that patient really helped me just get over that completely. And, uh, and, and now it's, it is, uh, for, you know, for 25 years anyway, it's been a, a technique that would be very difficult for me to do without. That's helpful. I, I can so relate to that. You know, oh, you mean like sticking needles in people to help them feel better? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And here's an interesting thing. That's not so weird anymore. Even in a place like St. Louis, Missouri, where I live, <laughs> acupuncture, it's like, it's not really weird. I mean, I have all kinds of people, you know, some real rednecky kinds of characters sometimes, you know, and it's like, well, you know, if it's going to help, but you know, let's do it. Gear done. It's What's great. That, another thing that Jean-Pierre told me is that you have to remember, if you do fringe medicine, the fringe always moves out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. So, yeah, like I said, you know, in, in the late 70s, acupuncture was super fringe, right? And it's not it's not fringe anymore. Not at all. All yeah. right. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. I, I appreciate giving you giving me the chance to talk about this stuff. Always enjoy a conversation with you. Take good care. Hope to see you soon. You too. Bye-bye. When I first approached the study of acupuncture in Chinese medicine, I was looking for answers, mostly to the question of how and why does this stuff work? And secondarily, I wonder if I can actually learn to help people with this stuff. The answer to that second question is yes, at least often enough to make it worthwhile getting out of bed in the morning to do the work. Dan's comments about bringing a sense of appreciation to our work, it struck a chord with me. It reminded me of those moments watching something extraordinary in nature, a sunset, the billow of clouds in the sky, the way certain animals move or how they can be attentively still. It brought to mind how particular lines of poetry can have an enzymatic effect and that connections beyond thinking suddenly coalesce into an understanding that you can feel in your core. And that appreciation is light and playful. It's not something you'll grasp with your rational mind, but it will give that logical, rational capacity something worthwhile to chew on. I love tools that are both inspirational and tangibly practical. I think it is one of the reasons this medicine is so appealing and provides a constant stream of worthwhile inquiries. I hope that you've enjoyed and found something nourishing for your sense of inquisitiveness in the time that we spent together. 
Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.